0: going to be reading to you this morning from Nehemiah um, chapters 9 and 10. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, the Levites, the leaders of the people the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God we the priests the levites and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our god at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the lord our god as it is written in the law we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree as it is also written in the law we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we'll bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests The gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept we will not neglect the house of our God the word of the Lord thanks be to God indeed let's
1: pray father we just pray that as we open your word that your spirit uh, falls upon what I say what is dross falls away what is valuable to the hearts of your people sinks into the bones of our marrow the marrow of our bones. Father, we just pray for your word to be comforting and transforming to be something that conflicts and challenges us as well as draws us to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been working through this book with us, if you've been in this series, you know that we have been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we are looking at the... the Uh, the covenant renewal process that's going on. This idea of the recommitment of the people of God to God himself. And as we look at the book of Nehemiah, we're looking at a story of both the physical renewal and the spiritual renewal of God's community. The plot line so far in the book of Ezra, after 70 years in exile, uh, some people come back and they start to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Then we get to part one of the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah, a Hebrew in Persia, hears that whilst the temple is being rebuilt, the walls are not being rebuilt. And that puts the community and the temple in danger. And he asks God to use his gifts and talents to help reconstruct that wall. He goes to Artaxerxes, the king of and asks for his blessing. Not only does Artaxerxes give the blessing for Nehemiah to go as governor, he also commits resources, the resources of Persia, to help with that building project. Nehemiah returns as governor, and in record time, in 52 days, given the money and the supplies and the manpower of both the people and of the state, the wall is rebuilt. Part two is the spiritual renewal. And we looked at the beginning of that last week when Carl started looking at what it means to read God's law. Today we are looking at chapters 9 and 10. You'll notice that in the reading we started at the end of nine with the with the expression, the summary expression, in view of all of this, which referred to chapter nine. And then we finished chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. And in fact, that's how we're going to structure the sermon today, in view of all what and what does it mean not to neglect the house of the Lord. So we are looking at the community renewal and the role of the community in our individual renewal in our faith. And we're doing that in a culture now, which is very similar to the culture that Jerusalem found itself in before it was rebuilding the temple, before it was committed to rebuilding the walls. It was a community where God had lost his relevance. He was unimportant for human life. And you can see that by the way they reacted to their own sinfulness, the way they were not committed to addressing the sinfulness in their community or themselves. You can see that by the way they and the attitude they had towards worship they were not committed to worship it was understood and expressed in that context in the temple with the sacrifices and with a clean heart and a willingness to acknowledge uh, and to confess neither corporately or individually and you could see that in a general corporate and individual lack of orientation towards God a lack of desire to live out what it means to be his people. And I think that we can say that that description fits our context today. God is pretty irrelevant in our culture. Our corporate and individual seriousness which we approach our sin and the the, the community around us, the, the country and the nations around us approach their sin. God seems to have lost his importance altogether. The commitment to worship as being at the center of everything we do and at the core of who we are and as the way we live our life has lost its centrality both in our nation and in the world. And I think it's also true to say that generally the orientation towards God is lost. God is a Sunday morning activity at best. And whilst I've been using the expression here that this is a problem with our community, our nation, with the nations, with the world. I think it's also true of North American Evangelicalism. And it's probably true, I know it's partly true of me, and it's true of us as a church. And we need to dig deep and start to look at are we taking sin seriously? Are we taking worship seriously? Are we oriented towards God in everything we do? Now today is a two part, is part one of a two part sermon. We are looking today at what it means in this covenant renewal process For the community to get it right. Next week we're going to look at chapter 13 and we're going to look at what it means when the community starts to get it wrong. Today we're going to break it down, as I mentioned, into two sections. What does it mean in view of all this, which is chapter 9, verse 38, the end of chapter 9. Something happened in chapter 9 which led to the summary in which we read of chapter 10, which finished with, We will not neglect the house of the Lord. So something happened in 9, which meant that they were able to take the sin and the worship and the orientation towards God seriously. So you're going to unpack those two pieces. In view of all this, I'm going to give you uh, sort of a, a clue here of what that is. Uh, but I'm going to start by looking at, well, there's, what's going on here is there's a gig corporate PR statement. In fact, the Levites have come out, and they're making a public relations statement. They're making a big mea culpa on behalf of the Hebrew people, on behalf of the Israelites. And I want you to look or think about what uh, mea culpa or corporate uh, mea culpas you've heard. Uh, Some that come to mind are the uh, corporate apology by Dove, when they put a Facebook ad up. Of a black woman washing herself with Dove and revealing a white woman underneath. Pretty insensitive, certainly caused a lot of flack. This was the corporate apology that Dove gave for that. An image we recently posted on Facebook missed the mark a little in representing women of color thoughtfully. We deeply regret any offense that this may have caused anybody. And it's interesting because in that, in that, corporate apology in that acknowledgement, they were sorry that they offended people. Sorry they offended people. There's a justification there. I'm sorry you were offended. I'm not sorry that I was culpable. I'm sorry that you were offended. There's a sense and this is that this, this is not a big deal. That it's that there are extraneous circumstances perhaps that got in the way. And this is not uncommon in the way we both corporately and personally confess our sins. I remember two very specific examples of working with people in the congregation many years ago. Uh, One of them was involved in defrauding the government and uh, I came to talk to her about that and in community discuss what that looked like and say you need to consider what your behavior is and whether you need to repent. Another one was having an affair with a married man. And again, I came alongside her and said, listen, you need to rethink your behavior here. This is not a great behavior, this is not a great choice. And both of them gave me reasons why their sin wasn't a big deal. First one was able to tell me that, you know, basically the circumstances around my lifestyle are that unless I defraud the government, I can't afford to live. Second one explained to me that they were lonely. And that whilst they acknowledged that their behavior was a problem, this was the solution to their loneliness. So we see that just as corporate PR statements will often misdirect or redirect or find excuses or blame extraneous circumstances. We do that in our confession as well. Another famous corporate apology, mea culpa, was the BP corporate apology. I don't know if you remember that. That was the CEO, Tony Hayward, following the Gulf oil spill. When he said, we're really sorry for this massive disruption it's causing to the lives of the people in the Gulf states. There's no one who wants this over more than I do. I would like my life back. <laughs> Not a very sensitive apology there. It might be bad, he's sort of saying, but you know, I want you to know that I'm suffering too. In the first case with Dove, there's a justification. In this case here, there's remorse, but not remorse for the sin, remorse for the consequence. It's people like who say, I'm really, really sorry I had that affair. It ruined my life. I'm really, really sorry about my temper. It cost me my job. The remorse is for the impact on self rather than for the deep, grievous sin that's been committed. So what do we see when we get to chapter 9? What's going on with this great big public PR statement by the Israelites? Well, we don't see any spin here. We see no justification. We see no false remorse. What we see is no hiding, no spin. We see a corporate mea culpa, which is genuine and to the point of actually being transformative. And I'm going to actually read a summary of it. Because I th- I, and I, as I read the summary, I want you to listen for two major themes that jump out of this. And they actually point to a singular transformative point, but I want you to look for them. And I'm going to come back at the end of reading through this, and I'm going to ask for you guys to call them out. So I want you to pay attention. And I want you to think of this a little bit like there's a juxtaposition in the text, and I want you to think of it like... What do you do when a jeweler comes out to sell you diamonds? They put the diamond on a black cloth so that the diamond pops. Uh, Patty and I bought a piece of artwork from, from Lissy. And we were talking this morning about how do we make that pop? This is a beautiful piece of artwork. How do we hang it in a place where the beauty of that artwork is revealed? And as you read this, te- uh, this text, as I read this summary of this text to you, listen for the days and the ewes, they's talking about our ancestors, ewes talking to God, and I want you to tell me what pops as I read through this. They gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloths and putting dust on their heads. They stood in places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They read from the book of the law and the law of God and their God for a quarter of a day, they spent another quarter of a day in confession and worshiping to the Lord. So that's what these people are doing here. This is the genuine confession. Now they're talking about to God and about their ancestors. You are the creator and sustainer. We belong to and we owe everything to you. You made a covenant with Abraham to give him land and descendants. You kept your promise. You saw our suffering in Egypt and forced Pharaoh to let us go. You divided the sea before them. You guided them by day with a pillar of cloud, and you guided them by night with a pillar of fire. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and good. You gave them bread from heaven and water from the rock. They became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. You are a forgiving God. You are a gracious God. You are a compassionate God. You are slow to anger. You abound in love. You did not desert them when they cast themselves on the image of a calf. You did not desert them when they committed awful blasphemies against your name. You did not abandon them in the wilderness. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You gave them kingdoms and nations. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought stars in the skies. You brought them into a land and you told them, that you told them their parents could enter and possess. They ate to the full. And they were well-nourished, and they revealed to your great goodness. They were, disobe- they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you. They turned their backs on lo- your Lord. They killed your prophets. They committed awful blasphemies. You gave them deliverers to rescue them from the hand of their enemies. They again, again did what was evil in your sight. You delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn back, to get them to turn back to your law. They became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinance. They stubbornly turned their backs on you, becoming stiff-necked and refusing to listen. You were patient. You warned them. They paid no attention. You did not put an end to them or abandon them. You are a gracious and merciful God. And in 33, after talking about all their ancestors they connected to themselves in all that has happened to us you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Now I hope it's really obvious. What's the juxtaposition here? What's the diamond on the black? What's the piece of artwork that's being pushed away from the clutter? What are we seeing here? Call it out please. What are the two things that jump out of this passage? We're awful. Okay. Any other thoughts? Anything else jump out? So you have acted faithfully towards God, and we have acted unfaithfully. So there's that juxtaposition. What else? Other ideas. What do you see in this passage? What juxtaposition do you see? Call them out. God's character. As, as opposed to our character? Okay. All right, so we're seeing these, that there's a, a strong sense of exactly those things, right? God's glory or weight and God's beauty, right? And those two things are really important to see here. God's beauty in terms of his character and his faithfulness and his weight and his glory. Now, the word weight and glory in Hebrew is the same word, kavod. And if you think about glory, what it's really saying here in the transition, and we're supposed to see it in this context, is that God's significance, God's relevance, God's glory, God's weightiness, God's significance is profoundly big as the creator, as the covenant worker, as the salvation narratives come through here, compared to to us who fail to meet to fail to live up to that, who are constantly wicked, constantly wayward, and so we're most supposed to see this tension between God's beauty and weightiness and our insignificance and our lack of glory, and you're supposed to wonder. And in fact, this word weightiness or significance or glory, whenever it's encountered in the Old Testament, leaves. especially through an epiphany or some other encounter with God directly, leaves the Hebrews crying out for God's mercy. They realize that that weightiness, that significance, that glory is all-consuming. It will burn them up. It will destroy them. It will crush them. Unless somehow they can get some significance or worth, or glory through their connection to god and this is what comes through these narratives this glory beauty paradox we are redeemed this glory we are saved from this glory because of the beauty the beauty of god's salvation narrative we see abraham mentioned in this where we become a people we see moses where we become a people we see relief from slavery and oppression in Egypt and from the exile, oppression from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. And we are supposed to, as Christians, recognize that this profound beauty-glory paradox also works through the cross. Through Christ we become a people. Through Christ we are relieved from slavery and oppression to sin. And so we see this narrative working for them. Oh, Again and again and again, in your glory, in your majesty, in your beauty, you have to work your salvation. You keep coming after us. You love us. Your character delights in us. You want us. The beauty here, next to the majesty, the beauty here is God's desire for us, for relationship with us. His constant coming back. His character, which is not just good but is also relational and desires to have community with us so why is this important in view of all this in view of this picture of God's beauty and God's glory or weightedness we see what happens in chapter 10 in chapter 10 there's communal recommittedness to Yahweh there's a Godward orientation flowing from an encounter of love or relevance or weightiness of God which leads to as you see in verse 29 a binding agreement an accountability that works through the community to the point where they make a promise if we don't hold to this we make an oath that if we don't hold to this we want to be cursed and we'll see in chapter 13 how that curse plays out next week and that's followed up with five commands from the law of Moses that they neglected, that they specifically address. And that's actually what Rob read to us today, primarily. And I want to make it clear before we jump into those five things, that the reason they mention those five things is because that's where they were failing. And so we shouldn't read those five things as being the primary principal elements Of what renewal covenant renewal looks like although I think as we delve into them you will see that they are all-encompassing and that's the point I want you to see and that their orientation is complete and their desire to follow the law is absolute in verse 30 we see that they are told not to enter into relationships or they're not to marry people who are going to lead them away from the Lord we see that they are not to marry Moabites or Amorites, that they are to keep constant. And the reason for that is because when they intermarry, those gods become the gods of the family. And it leads them away from Yahweh. And so a principle here which applies to us is that every relationship that we enter into must be one that nurtures rather than hinders our relationship with Yahweh. Of course, that's easy and simple on some level where if we're young and we're looking at dating or if we're looking at getting married or if we're in our marriage, we need to structure our marriage so that it nurtures rather than hinders. But it also applies more broadly than that. It applies, it doesn't mean that you stay away from non-Christians, quite the opposite. It means as you engage with non-Christians, you do it in ways where you bring glory to God. You don't Uh, subject your relationship to the whims of the culture around you. That you are faithful to God in all your relationships and you make sure that rather than being led away, as you engage and work and develop uh, relationships, those relationships nurture rather than hinder your relationship with Yahweh. In verse 2 we see that they are told how you do business matters. In fact they're told specifically they're not to do business on the Sabbath with people who come and trade with them. And they are to forgive debts of those, uh, who, um, those who have debts. And f- so they are to have compassion and mercy like God has compassion and mercy to them. And they are to bring God's value into their business. And the principle, of course, there is that we need to prioritize God's ethics and values in the way we do business. And we show mercy. Okay, That's what this covenant renewal looks like. It is not just some sort of emotional, expressive response to God in a worship service. It is a full recommitment, a Godward orientation that flows into everything we do. The relationships we enter into, the priorities we put on God's ethics and values in the way we do business and show mercy. In verses 32 and 33, we see that everybody is required to make sure that the local place of worship, the the church that they had, is supported. That shekel is given in order to keep the church afloat. So they are, in a sense, all publicly committing themselves to the corporate church. And a lot of people don't like the organized corporate church, but that is the way God works. And that's the way God brings his people together. And so there is a command in Scripture here and a way that covenant renewal requires us to support the organized church, both capital C and small c, the one you are in here and the global church. We are to be as invisible, transformed, Holy Spirit members of the invisible church. We are supposed to participate and work within the flawed yet true visible church of Christ. Again, it's profound. Our relationships, the way we do our ethics and our business, how we engage with the organized church. Verse 34, you see that the priests are told, run around and get the wood, do what you need to do in order to minister and do what priests do. And you think, oh, finally, there's one here that only applies to the pastors, that they have to be engaged in the work of ministry, whatever that looks like. But if you take Peter too seriously, then you know that we're all a royal priesthood of believers. And so in this, now in the New Covenant context, we need to be investing in ministering to one another, being priests to one another, coming alongside one another. So these, so far we've got the relationships we do, the, the ethics and the values we do with business, the way we show mercy, The way we support the organized church, the way we invest in ministering to one another. And then if that's not enough, we get to verses 35 to 39, which are a complete life orientation. The first fruits. Everything we do has to be oriented towards God. Our crops, our fruit trees, our children, our cattle, our wine are all to be kingdom building activities. And we see that these are to support three activities. Ministering priests, of course that is the work of the people, which now of course uh, is much broader than just the context of Jerusalem. That's how we engage and support and nurture the Kingdom of God in terms of our work. And then this idea of gatekeepers, the people who create space and uh, a generosity and spaciousness in which we practice and worship and bring about the Kingdom of God and we're going to look more at this idea of spaciousness and generosity as we move towards covenant renewal next week. But that's in a sense how we outwork our politics small p politics. How we come alongside each other how we are generous to one another emotionally and uh, physically in terms of how we support one another. And finally the musicians how we engage in support in the nurture of the Kingdom in terms of our focused creativity. So if you've got that list there, which is not an exhaustive list, but it sort of captures the breadth of the list that Nehemiah's people worked on, our relationships, our ethics and values in business, the way we show mercy, the way we support the organized church, the way we invest and minister in one another, the way we work, the way we create spacious, generous small p politics with one another and the way we engage and support and nurture the kingdom of God in terms of our creative expression. It's big, it's not small, it should feel consuming, it's universal. Everything we do is immersed in our faithfulness. Our faithfulness needs to be immersed in everything we do. It impacts everything. And that's what it means in the summary statement at the end of this, where it says, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. We will not neglect the kingdom of God. Now, let's put those two things together. In view of this, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. Or in our terms, seeing God's beauty and God's weightiness or glory, we will not neglect the kingdom of God. And you don't do this on your own terms as an individual. You do this in submission to God and to one another. Notice the order that this has been unpacked in the chapters. Chapter 8, reading God's word. Chapter 9, see God's love and beauty and weightiness and repent without justification or remorse. Chapter 10, recommit and submit to God's definition of how we live life. Now, Sunday isn't enough. We can't do this by just turning up to a worship service once a week. We need to be doing a community that does life together. We need to do this on God's terms in accountable community. Now you can do this one-on-one, but you need to be intentional about doing this. Who are you accountable to? Who do you submit to? Who do you talk to? Who are you vulnerable with? And we provide structural ways of doing that we try to facilitate small groups which we will be unpacking and outrolling again after covid as soon as we can we have a diaconate which has a second line of accountability if you need support if you need help if you need someone to come alongside you go to the diaconate there is kyle and myself sunday isn't enough life on life Who are you walking with? Who are you vulnerable with? Who are you accountable to? Now, I wanna conclude where we're gonna pick up next week with this tension, in a sense, between grace and law. I don't know if you had a reaction to what I just said. We as a church are pretty good at this idea that faith is supposed to be all-consuming, that it affects every area of our life. But I think it's easy for us to do that on our own terms. Yes, God influences every part, but I I have a lot of freedom to choose what that looks like or which pieces I can sort of neglect or how I can move around. Yes, God is Lord of every square inch, but the idea of submitting to one another or submitting to the law of God as it's written in Scripture is a little bit harder for us. And we tend to be very generous, or what we might call gracious, with our every square inch idea. I'm not sure how well we do at the submission and the law thing. I certainly don't know how well I do with the submission and the law thing. Now theologians often speak of a tension between grace and law. They even equate, they even use big and have created big words for this. You've probably heard of the term legalism, right? That's where there's too much emphasis on the law. You may or may not have heard of the term antinomianism, which is too much reliance on grace, where law doesn't matter, where we're free to do whatever we want because God's love and grace is is, is sufficient, and there's no need for us to be focused on the law. And the premise is that somehow as churches and as Christians, we need to navigate this middle ground between law and grace. And this is a great fallacy, a false dichotomy, a huge misrepresented paradox that is not the case at all. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden where the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says to, says to them, God's law is bad. You can't trust God. What God says is not in your best interest. And by implication, God is also not good. God is not gracious. God doesn't love you. God is not beautiful. God doesn't delight in you. His law is out to oppress you. When you believe that God is truly good and that he truly loves you, you see God and the law as beautiful. And you are neither legalistic nor antinomian. You are not caught in this tension between grace and law. I'm going to read you a quote from a theologian pastor named Sinclair Ferguson, which captures this, uh, this false dichotomy well. There is only one genuine cure for legalism. It is the same medicine the gospel prescribes for antinomianism. Understanding and tasting union with Jesus Christ himself. This leads to a new love for obedience and to the law of God, which he now mediates to us in the gospel. This alone breaks the bonds of both legalism, because the law is no longer divorced from the person of Christ, and antinomianism. We are not divorced from the law, which now comes to us from the hand of Christ, and in the empowerment of the spirit, is written on our hearts without this both legalist and antinomian remain wrongly related to god's law and inadequately related to god's grace the marriage of duty with delight in christ is not yet rightly celebrated it is only when you see that god's law is beautiful that god's law is given to us For us to flourish that god's law is given to us as a gift and it is as beautiful as he is is not how we earn our salvation it is not how uh, we feel better about ourselves or superior to other people it is not how we self-condemn it's none of those things it's an expression of who he is we don't react to it with justification or remorse when we fail, or the reverse of that when we condemn other people. We see it as a reflection of his character and it is beautiful and it draws and we are drawn to it and we are delighted by it and the duty and our response to it is one of worship and thankfulness. I told you before that I spent uh, spent some time talking to two people who were struggling one financially that they were uh, and one that was lonely and having an affair and the one that was lonely and having an affair was not a member and membership is not uh, not requirement to be a Christian in any way although working within the true body of the church and in that accountability structure can be helpful but that person who was not a member and I really appreciate it coming and talking to me, said, look, I'm telling you this because I really appreciate the community of the church. I don't want to submit to what God is saying to me, but I like being part of this community. And I tried to hold up the beauty of the law. That's all I could do. Say, hey, God doesn't say that having an affair is bad because he wants to make you lonely. God has these, these laws about our sexual behavior because he wants to bless you. And he wants to help you be free and yes that is hard and yes that comes with difficulty now that person ended up saying I I don't want to do that and certainly we did not run them out of the church they were welcome to stay but eventually they drifted off because they weren't drawn by the Holy Spirit to Christ on the other hand the, the one who was struggling financially when we held her accountable, when we came alongside her, she responded to that accountability by saying, you're right, I need to work out how to change my life. And it was complicated because her financial situation was difficult and she did need to work through that, but the Spirit led her in community through accountability to true, account, to true repentance. And as we approach these texts and we, we see that beauty and glory expressed through Christ is what leads to true faithfulness in the law the question that we all need to ask in accountability with each other in community is where is the Spirit leading us let's pray that God and Heavenly Father we are confronted by this rather hard passage This idea that moving into covenant renewal is moving into submission to one another and to you. And Father, we know that a big piece of this really is understanding that what what your laws are and where our failings are, but a bigger piece of this is realizing that you are a God of love, you really are a God of love, and you delight in us, and you give us your law because of your love, and that your law is good, and the responding to your salvation narratives and to who you are expressed in Christ leads us to respond with delight and duty to your law. Not out of fear and not out of self-righteousness, but out of relationship to you. So help us be those people of covenant renewal, Help us, as we look next week, to understand the spaciousness, the small p- politics, and the journey that's required to get there. But Father, help us all be committed to that process of renewal, of constant renewal, of delight in who you are, and in response to that delight in submission to one another and to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.